We are going to focus on that theme right there we were just singing about. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'd like to begin with you in the book of Colossians and then we will bounce around a little bit. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul has heard that several false ideas has arisen since he was in that region. He was never, I don't think, in the city of Colossae, but he was close by in the other regions. And many of those who were converted to Christ were able to carry the gospel through Colossae. So there's a church there, but many false ideals were arising during uh, those days. It was a conglomerate of ideas. Much of what we see today, or the type of things that we see today and hear about today, were also there in Colossae. Uh, some people were dabbling still in the old law. Uh, some were following the philosophies. If you look at Colossians uh, 2 verse 8, uh, they were being spoiled by the philosophies of men. Uh, the commandments of men, Colossians 2, uh, 23. If you look at the end of the chapter of chapter 2, Colossians, you see that some had um, growing into the worship of angels. Some were part of paganistic ideas that included being um, severe to your body, mistreating your own body, thinking that, that somehow um, the body is evil. And therefore you need to, to mistreat it. There's a whole conglomerate of things going wrong that were beginning to disturb the Lord's church in those days. And Paul, in view of this, he felt there needed to be a strong statement or strong statements about Jesus. About Jesus. Even today, it seems that people don't want to follow the standard of God but rather they want to dabble in this or that. Oftentimes if you hear a movie star or athlete uh, interviewed and the question comes, up about, question comes up about their religion, they will often say, I'm on a spiritual journey. I'm on a spiritual journey. I'm, in other words, I'm dabbling, I'm practicing this, and I'm, I'm trying this, and I'm trying some of the Bible, I'm trying some of this cult practice over here. I'm on a spiritual journey or, or I'm in a different place. I'm in a different place. You, very difficult to nail them down to anything. And that's what was happening in the city of Colossae in those days in regard to religion. People were wanting to dabble in a lot of different things. A strong statement about uh, Jesus the Christ needed to be made. And Paul makes it here several times and in several ways in the book of Colossians. I want us to go all the way down, narrow our focus to Colossians 2 in verse 9. Colossians 2 in verse 9, speaking of Christ, the apostle says, In him dwells, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells all the good all the fullness of the Godhead bodily bodily. Okay. And so let's take that apart for just a second. Fullness means the full measure. The full measure. In other words, in Jesus Christ is the full measure of every attribute that there is of God 
himself. Okay. Sometimes um, you might glance at your uh, window at your house. Maybe your curtains or shades are pulled and, and just a ray of sunshine is coming through. Well, that's not the way it was uh, with Christ. It wasn't just a ray of godliness in him. Uh, in Christ was the fullness, the full measure of what it was to be God. And then notice in Colossians 2 verse 9, the word dwells. In Christ dwells. The word there means uh, to have a fixed place. A fixed place. The Godhood of all it means to be God had a fixed place in the one they called uh, Jesus. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Bodily. That last word bodily is very interesting. When Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended up on high, He received what is called in Philippians 3.21, He received a glorious body. And by the time Paul writes this letter, of course, to the Colossians, then that is where Jesus is. He's on the right hand of God. He has, of course, several years prior uh, to Paul writing to the Colossians, he has, Jesus has been risen from the dead and he was, he was raised and on the earth uh, 40 days and then uh, taken up to be on the right hand of God. That's where he is, that's where he's been, that's where he's at when Paul writes this letter. But even there, Jesus has his glorious body. In fact, there in Philippians 3.21, the promise is that, that on judgment day, God will change our lowly body, to be made like unto the body, the glorious body of Jesus Christ. And so when you look at Colossians 2 and verse 9, you see a wonderful picture of Jesus. You see the fact that He is God, but also that at some point, because He has a glorious body, He came to this earth and and with a great deal of generosity and love, He sacrificed Himself. Now, we want to take the fullness ideal here and expand on it for just a few minutes this this evening. In Jesus Christ is the fullness of deity, the fullness of Godhood. And we're going to kind of do a matching game, if you will, a matching game. Because as we said a moment ago, what that means is that, that Jesus has the full measure of attributes characteristics that would make God, God. So we're going to do some matching here. We're going to name an attribute of God and see how that is uh, displayed and that is seen in Jesus Christ. Okay, So that's what I mean by matching. The first attribute of God that I want uh, to mention is the fact that He is eternal. He is eternal. Deuteronomy 33, uh, 27 says the eternal God is our dwelling place and underneath are his everlasting arms. Psalm 90 and verse 2. Don't you love that verse though? Psalm Deuteronomy 33, 27. Go back to that a minute. The eternal God is our dwelling place and underneath are his everlasting arms. What a comforting passage. In Psalm 90 verse 2 
the statement is, from everlasting unto everlasting thou art God. Okay. Also now, matching this, Jesus Christ is presented to us as having a continuous existence. Okay. He has a continuous existence. One example is found in John 8, beginning in verse 55. Now, Jesus could be a little sharp with people when they deserved it. Okay. And so there he is talking to these unbelieving Jews. And he says to them, now I know the Father. I know the Father. I know him very, very well. I know the Father. And then he looked to the Jews he said, if I were to say to you, I don't know him, I would be a liar just like you are. That's actually said there in your, in your Bible, John 8, verse 55. He said, I would be a liar just like you are. And then he goes on to teach them. John 8 verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then they responded and said, You're not even yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant. They knew he was indicating to them that he is God. He is eternal God. And so they took up stones to start throwing at him as they often uh, did. John 1 verse 1 talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that has been made. That sounds like an eternal God uh, to me. So the first matching attribute is the eternality, the, the eternal aspect of God. The second attribute I want to mention is how that God is present everywhere. God, we call it sometimes omne, omnipresent. He, he is not confined to a certain locality. Okay, we know this to be true of God. For example, in Acts chapter 17, 27, Paul encourages men to seek after God, to feel after Him, and to find Him, for He is not far from every one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our very being. Now he's talking to those who worship idols there in the city of Athens, and even to those people, God is not very far from, from any of them. God is not very far from any human being. He has an omnipresence about him. Well, how does this relate to Jesus? Well, when Jesus was on earth as a human, he was not able, he did not, I should say, he did not appear at two or three places at, at the same time. But now that he's at the right hand of God, he's able to be there but also be with us. And that's part of the greatness of his promises, right? We remember... Uh, as the promise goes, if we carry out the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 20, then Jesus promises, he says, and I will be with you. I will be with you always, even unto, unto the end of the world. There Jesus is able to be omnipresent, be at the right hand of God, but also be with us. Also be with us. In Matthew chapter 26, and verse 29, is Jesus has this discussion with his disciples about the upcoming Lord's Supper to be taken in the kingdom. He says, I will drink it new with you 
I will drink it new with you. We, we believe as much as we believe anything that as we worship together and partake in these items of worship that God, the Lord Jesus himself, is with us. He is with us. In Matthew 18, verse 20, we, we read the familiar phrase where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. It's a great promise, but what is Jesus talking about? Well, he's not just talking about a simple assembly of a few believers. He's talking about unity. He's specifically talking about how that we, as his followers, if we know of, of a brother or sister who is involved in sin, we need to go see them. We need to go see them so that that can bring more unity to the kingdom, to the body of Christ. And Jesus says, when that is occurring, then there I am in the midst of you. In Acts 18 and verse 10, as Paul labors in the city of Corinth, Jesus appears to him and says, I am with you and I have many people in this city. Don't, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. In Hebrews chapter 13, and I love this verse. It's a great challenging verse. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The commandment there is to be free of the love of money and be content with such things as you have. That is a huge commandment. Okay. How are you going to get this done? You're going to trust in the Lord because he says right after that, he says, it is written, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he goes on to say, and quotes another verse, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what men shall do unto me. Underneath greed is fear. Is fear. Why do people keep grasping after, grasping after, and wanting to pile up possession after possession? It's because they have an underlying fear that if they don't do this, then something is going to go terribly wrong. Okay? And instead of trusting in God to provide what they need, then they're trusting in themselves. But the explanation there, the explanation is, look, you don't have to be greedy. Okay? You can be content. You can be settled. You can have peace in your life. But here's what it is. Here's how it goes. Remember and believe and trust that the Lord is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is your helper. You do not have to fear. Underneath both greed and worry is fear. And the Lord wants to take that away. And so notice that a second matching attribute of God and Jesus is his omnipresence. He's not confined to one locality. And the next attribute of God is, as we mentioned this morning, his great knowledge. His great knowledge. We won't belabor this, but I remember when, when Job, in his experiences, and what an experience he had. But Job did not lose his faith, but he had some questions for God. And he and God in the book of Job go back and forth. And then Job, he comes to this conclusion, Job 42 verse 3. He said, I uttered things which I did not understand. It's a confession of Job. Job 42 verse 3. He said, I, I uttered things I didn't understand. Such knowledge, referring back to the knowledge of God. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot withstand it. So God has perfect knowledge. And Jesus showed this. Jesus showed this as well. For example, in John 6, verse 70, 
he looked to his uh, apostles. He said, did I not choose you, the twelve? Did I not choose you? And one of you is a devil? And he was speaking of Judas. See, he knew before Judas went after and began to work on his, his terrible plan to betray the Lord. Jesus already knew what Judas was up to. I find it interesting to watch Jesus deal with people. In Luke chapter 6, on the Sabbath day, Luke 6, verses 5 through 9, Jesus is there. A man is brought in. His right hand is withered. Luke 6, 5 through 8. His right hand is withered. The Jews, incredibly, were watching to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath day. Now, somehow, they cannot be impressed with the fact that he has the ability to heal the withered hand. No, they have to watch and see, will he do this on the Sabbath day? And it says there that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he knew their thoughts. He asked them a question. He says, I want to ask you something. Here's what he asked them. He said, is it it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath day? Is it lawful to kill or to preserve life, to save life on the Sabbath day? And they couldn't answer him back on that. But they were very irritated that he knew their thoughts and he caught them uh, in what they were trying to do. They were trying to catch him and try to accuse him of breaking the old law. They didn't understand the old law. The Sabbath day did not prevent a person from helping another person. God just wanted it to be a day of rest from regular work. And they had so perverted and made vain the old law that many people were now confused. But notice how Jesus, he knew their thoughts. And so notice how that God has perfect knowledge and Jesus showed that in his life as well. Another matching attribute is the power of God and how it is seen in the life of Jesus. We know that God has all power. Going back to Job and Job 42, you can really... Notice some marvelous statements in in Job 42. Job 42, verse 2, this time. Job 42, verse 2. Job said to God, He said, I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours will ever be restrained. That's what Job had learned in all his experience. Job already knew this. He already knew God had wonderful knowledge. He already knew God had wonderful power. But his experiences and suffering have brought this to a greater level. And so he expounds on the power of God. And certainly we see this in the life of Jesus. How many ways could we explain this? You remember in John 11 that Jesus just spoke the word. And the four-day-old dead corpse of Lazarus was then filled with life. Jesus just spoke the word. But I also love the song we were singing just a few minutes ago. In Mark chapter 4, around verses 36 and 37, we, we have Jesus on that boat. And a raging storm came up and he instantly calmed the storm with but two words, really. In the original, I know it's, it's a peace, be still, peace, be still. But really, in the original language, it's just peace, quiet, or silence, quiet. He just spoke two words, 
and the sea calmed down. They're on the Sea of Galilee there, and the Sea of Galilee is known to have a very low sea level, but at the same time, surrounding the Sea of Galilee were some gigantic hills, a couple thousand feet uh, high. That created what scholars say, it created a, a tunnel effect. And you, you've experienced this. If you ever walk through a breezeway and you'll notice that it all of a sudden is very windy in the breezeway, it kind of creates a tunnel uh, impact. And this is what happened down there on the Sea of Galilee. Oftentimes the wind would rush in uh, over the mountains and cause a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. And there they were. And the storm was so rough that water was filling the boat and the boat was just about to sink and, and, and break up. And there Jesus was asleep. And they woke him up. Master, cares not that we perish. This is the master of the ocean, earth, and skies. Master, do you not care that we perish? And Jesus said, peace be still. Jesus calmed the storm instant way. Nicodemus got it, John 3, verse 2. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no man could do these signs except God be with him. It's interesting that, I'm just going to take the time to read this because it's just so interesting. Psalm 89, verse 9, if you want to mark it, I think you'll want to. Psalm 89, verse 9 Talking about God, just talking about God, Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule, God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And amazing that that is recorded in Psalms, and then Jesus actually carried that out in real life. And so the power of God is another matching attribute. And let's notice just a couple, two, three more. We know that God is completely holy. Isaiah 6 and verse 3. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy was what Isaiah saw up in his heavenly vision. Angels praising the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus showed the holiness of God, if anybody did, uh, in his earthly life. Who else could stand like he did he does there in John 8 and 29 and say, I always do those things pleasing to the Father. Nobody could, could stand and say that like, like Jesus. John 8, 29. And if you're going down to John 8, 46, he looked to his enemies. He said, which of you convicts me of sin? I told you the truth and you would not believe me. Now, I could never do that. You couldn't ever do. You cannot look at somebody and say, "Look, you can't. You can't ever convict me of sin." But Jesus could. Jesus could. Peter, by inspiration, writes in First Peter two twenty two, "Jesus did no sin; neither was guile ever found in his mouth." This is so important to the completion of the gospel plan of salvation. Without the holiness of Jesus Christ we would absolutely be lost. You see, as Peter explains to us in 1 Peter 1.19, the sacrifice had to be as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. The sin offering for the world 
had to be a perfect sacrifice, holy sacrifice, acceptable unto God. As we read from Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, uh, he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin in our behalf. Okay? In other words, he became a sin offering for us. That's what that means. Hebrews 9 27 and 28 says, As it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. So Christ Jesus was once offered, Hebrews 9, 28. Christ Jesus was once offered to bear the sins of many. And the reason that he could do that is because he was perfectly holy in all that he did, all that he is and was. The next matching attribute I want us to notice is the justice of God. Going back to Psalm 89 and and verse 14 this time. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice, they are the foundations of the throne of God. We know that very, very well. But there it is in Scripture. Psalm 89 verse 14. Jesus was so fair and so just in his dealings with people. Sometimes to be fair with people, you've got to go against the grain of society. For example, in John 4, here's this woman of Samaria. Now, most of the teachers of the law in those days would stay far away from a Samaritan woman, especially in public. As John 4 verse 9 says, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And even Jesus' disciples, when they came back from getting food and saw Jesus, John 4, 27, saw Jesus talking to this woman, they, they were stunned at it. They were, they were amazed that he would do that. But the woman, though she had a very sordid background, still in justice and fairness, because she, she had that good heart, she deserved to be taught about the identity of Jesus and to be presented with the opportunity to serve him. It's just how fair Jesus is. In Luke chapter 7, about 36 through 50, you remember Jesus is in the home of Simon the Pharisee having a meal with him there, a lady from the city who's known to be a sinner, most likely a prostitute. Uh, she comes in. She comes in. She begins to, to uh, anoint his head and to, put, um, to wash his feet, to show a great deal of devotion to him, obviously in some time passed, Jesus had forgiven her of her sins, and she just couldn't help but show her devotion to him. Now, Simon and the other Pharisees were very critical of the woman and Jesus spending time with this woman, but Jesus, Jesus commended her and lifted her up and gave her the, the way uh, to the truth, even though uh, she had done some, some uh, things in the past that she, she would be ashamed of. And we remember in John 8, 1 through 11, that a woman was brought in and Jesus was teaching in the temple one morning. A woman was brought in. She was caught in the very act of adultery and, and they tried to catch Jesus in his words. It never worked. Why did they keep trying this? But they tried to catch him in his words, in his works. And he said, now, the law says to stone this lady. What do you say? What do you say? Jesus would have nothing to do with this. What the law said, Leviticus 20, verse 10 what the law said, Leviticus 20, verse 10, was 
that when there was such an adulterous adulterer situation, both the, the man and woman were to be brought in in stone. Okay. But their, their ideal that morning with Jesus was just trying to catch him in his words, just try to find some kind of accusation against him. Jesus would have nothing with that. He was totally just and fair all the time. And you who are without sin, let him cast the first stone. He cleared that room because he's just and he's fair. The next attribute of God that I think is helpful to see that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus is the attribute of truth. Attribute of truth. One of my favorite um, studies is to notice the words, the things that Jesus said while he was dying on the cross. One of those, so many of them are quotations from the Old Testament. One of those is a quotation from Psalm 31, verse 5, where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he says that, he quotes that while he's uh, on the cross. But if you finish that verse, Psalm 31, verse 5, it goes on to say that God is the God who redeems us and God is a God of truth and faithfulness. If anybody in the whole existence ever keeps their promises and their word, if anybody's involved in truth in a perfect way, it would be God. It would be God. Jesus was a man of truth. He is the Lord of truth. Quickly notice this. Jesus is the truth. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, the life, Jesus said. We read in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, even the glory of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the truth. Secondly, Jesus brought the truth, John 1, 17. Jesus brought the truth. John 1.17 says, The law came by Moses, and grace and truth came through uh, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, of course, he taught the truth. He taught it. John 8.31 and 32. He said, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, shall set you free. And then Jesus left the truth for us. He promised the apostles in John 16, 13, that when he was gone, the spirit of truth would come to them as, as the spirit of truth did on the day of Pentecost and guide them into all the truth. Therefore, we have the truth with us today. Jesus is the truth. He brought the truth. He taught the truth. He left the truth uh, for us. And then there's the attribute of mercy. As we mentioned this morning, Ephesians 2, 4 says, God is rich in mercy. And Jesus is so merciful. Let's bring that all the way over to us because time is short. Oftentimes, New Testament writers would sum up a person's conversion by just simply using the word mercy. Word mercy. Like Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 13 refers to himself. He said, at one time... I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was a violent man opposing Christ, but I attained mercy, 1 Timothy 
In other words, when Paul obeyed the gospel, he received the mercy of God. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. We as the people of God, we ought to be showing forth, Peter says, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who at one time we were not a people, but now we're the people of God. Who at one time we had not obtained mercy, but now we have received mercy from God. It sounds like that we need to stop and appreciate more often how merciful the Lord is to us in bringing forgiveness to us. Paul used it as a motivation. If you look there in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1, he said, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we tell you not to faint, not to lose heart, not to lose heart. What are the two helps there Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1 that can keep us from losing heart, that can keep us from from being discouraged? Two things, mercy from God and ministry in Jesus Christ. Appreciating the mercy of God but also being active and serving the Lord in so many ways. That will keep us from being uh, discouraged. And so... I wanted us to see Colossians 2 verse 9. I want us to see that in Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And see how that played out in the life of Jesus and all that he has done for us. What are some things that we can carry away from these ideas? First, have I been involved in the good confession? The good confession, Romans 10 9 and 10 says we ought to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We ought to believe in our hearts that He raised Him from the dead and believe also that Jesus is Lord. Do I believe this? Have I made the good confession followed up by being baptized for the remission of my sins? I need to dwell on that and think about that. Am I convicted about this? Am I convicted about it? Is Jesus your Lord? Is He your King? Is He your ruler? Is it a deeply held conviction that you'll never give up? Do you need more evidence? We've been able to match about eight or so attributes of God right to the very person of Jesus Christ. What more evidence do you need than what has been given to us to make Jesus your Lord? These attributes that we have mentioned this evening can make us a better Christian, no doubt. If you'll notice the first four attributes of eternity and God's omnipresence, and God's knowledge and power, if we really let those sink deeply into our hearts, it can help us to trust God. And then the other four attributes of holiness and justice and truth and mercy can help us to be more like God. So we can become a better Christian by stopping and appreciating the fullness of of the Godhead dwelling in Jesus.
because we can trust him and be more like him. We need to carry our conviction about Jesus with us. As we said earlier, many people dabble in different types of religious ideals. I run into them all the time. That doesn't work before God. That doesn't work. I've mentioned to you my friend that I still meet from time to time, Kevin the Buddhist. And most of the time Kevin will look at me and he'll say, we do a lot of the same things that you do. We do good. We stay away from from harm. We're kind to people. We're generous to people. I, I say, Kevin, you've got to deal with Jesus Christ. You've got to deal with Him. There's so much evidence that He is Lord, that He is Lord of your life. You cannot just escape. Okay. This is here. This is written. And you must deal with Christ. And so we wanted to see Paul's statement from Colossians 2. We wanted to see how Jesus matches several of the attributes of God and then make these conclusions that we ought to obey the Lord, surrender uh, to Him, be convicted about it, be willing to grow in the grace and knowledge, but also be willing to carry uh, these truths with us and talk to other people about it. Will you come this evening as we stand together, as we sing? Over here.